Blooming Lotus Yoga presents Drops of Nectar with Ramananda Mayi. In this podcast, we share the profound wisdom of yoga, tantra, and Vedanta so that you may deepen your understanding of the Dharma and live a more fulfilling, awakened, and compassionate life. Namaste. How is everyone tonight? <laughs> nice. Nice. So we're, we're getting near the end here. And uh, tomorrow afternoon after the Yoga Nidra, we'll practice meditation like normal. And then we're going to begin to the process of extroversion as we break our silence and allow you all to begin to express all this light and all this peace and all this goodness that you found inside. Um, and on one level, <laughs> just a few days ago, you couldn't wait till this was all over, I imagine. And then here tomorrow, you're going to realize that, oh my God, this has come to a close now. Because like the depths of peace that some of us have touched within the last few days, possibly today, because today was really shanti, and the vibration and the, and the feeling and the, and the space around us is just, and the space within us, obviously, is so profoundly still and so profoundly peaceful. And this kind of peace is very hard to come by, hard to come by in the normal day-to-day -day world where we have so many responsibilities and pressures and stresses and just a lot of distractions that go on in our day-to-day -day life and these golden moments of our lives where we just come. We have to give the body a little bit of trouble. Finding this level of peace without troubling the body is harder to come by. We need to give a little bit of trouble to the body. But as you've seen after like the fifth day now, I think sixth day, I'm, I'm losing count. <laughs> you begin to see that the, the, those growing pains, those initial levels of discomfort and that difficulty is largely left. It's no longer part of like the, the primary experience of sitting in meditation. It's still somewhat there, but not so terrible. And if we were to keep on this trajectory and we have the leisure time and, the, and the, the conditions allowed for us to stay like this for another week, another two weeks, another month, two months, you can only imagine how deep you can go just seeing how deep you've come in six days. And this is really the way of yoga and the lifestyle of a yogi. Uh, many great masters have said, if somebody can live like this, just the way that we're living, for about six or seven years, without too much disturbance, without too much extroversion, they will, they will come to know the ultimate truth. They will become 100% enlightened, totally awake. Gautama the Buddha said this. He said, if you just follow these teachings for about seven years and apply yourself sincerely to them, that will be enough. You will understand the whole Dharma and you will realize Nirvana in, in seven years. Uh, in more recent days, the great saint uh, Amrita Nandamayama said something similar. Amrita says, you have to give this your full dedication, your full focus. Six, seven years is all it takes. Now, six, seven years when you're like in your 20s, seems like forever. And why would I want to spend six or seven years 
of the prime of my life doing such things. And because of those thoughts and those ideas, these moments are fleeting. Six or seven days, good enough. You're ready to, <laughs> you're ready to go. And good enough, good enough. But know that you're on the right track. If you're in your early 20s or mid-20s and you found the path and, and this is something that um, resonates with you, then the good karma is there that you will likely begin to, you know, find more opportunities to live in the Dharma and to really go deeper into your practice. So you're always welcome to come back here and you're welcome to obviously go wherever it is that you like to find. And over the years of your life, you'll attract more and more positive people, more and more spiritual people, more and more amazing centers and, and, and practitioners, and whenever you can, it becomes incredibly helpful to surround yourself with community of like-minded people, and also spend a little bit of time every year in retreat. You don't need to live like this full-time, it's impossible at this stage of your life, but if in your normal household or life you have all your responsibilities, but you also have the leisure having some weeks off every year from your work, from your family, for your responsibilities. <coughs> Rather than becoming like a normal worldly person and becoming a tourist and going here, going there, and just participating in this kind of like new tourist culture that's emerging, better, you do a little bit of that. Yeah, I like to do a little bit of that. But more importantly is in the midst of that, try to find places like this and other places that support the Dharma and are actively teaching and giving you the opportunity to practice it intensely. Because just six or seven days of deep meditation is enough to carry you for two to three months, whereby for the most part, unless there's karmas there or you've got some other major problems you're dealing with, if everything is relatively okay for you, you'll be able to maintain a certain level of clarity, a certain level of peacefulness, a certain level of, of stillness from this retreat into day-to-day -day life. After some weeks, after some months, you'll begin to forget that it's possible to live like this and to, to have this kind of um, awareness. And then it'll fade away and then the karma accumulates and the life happens. But whenever you can take a break from that, by all means we encourage you to find more and more opportunities to go into retreat. So by the time you're in, in your 30s, you're you know, doing this once a year. By the time you're in your late 30s, if you can do this twice a year, you're in really good shape. By the time you get to 40, your time is running out. You can't just do this once or twice a year <laughs> because soon the, the body is going to cause all sorts of problems, health, disease, all sorts of things are going to come to bother you. And when you're in your 30s, you have so many desires still relationship and this experience, that experience, and you can't suppress that. You need to go through the growing pains of the samsara and it needs to, you know, churn you through it for some time until you realize, okay, this isn't really why I'm here to be churned around like this. I need to find another way, a better way. And then the Dharma will present itself again to you. But as you get older and older, we begin to see that that the necessity of dedicating more and more time to our, our spiritual practice is essential. And in addition to your morning session and your evening session at home by yourself, however long that can be, it's also really, really important to begin to value this time that you have in retreat and to find more and more opportunities and to, of letting go of the responsibilities of the world and pursuing this aspect of life. Because when the body begins to give way and disease and old age begin to come in, Practicing with this level of intensity becomes more challenging unless the mind has been made strong already 
If the mind can be made strong and stable in the meditative states, good concentration is there, maybe some experiences that you've had, you know, 10, 20 years of meditation, they'll give you the kind of mental strength. So when the body starts giving you troubles, you're less affected by them, you're less distracted by them. And then ultimately the whole path for the householder, for those that aren't on the, you know, renunciate path, by the time you get into your 50s, and definitely by the time you are in your 60s, you have to make this full time. Really, your spiritual life needs to become something that is such a integral part of your experience. And everything you can do in your 30s and 40s to shape the outer world in terms of profession, family responsibilities, social obligations, you want to begin to find ways of making decisions ahead of time before life starts kind of taking over, as it were, in the, in the not good way. And like, you know, you're just being at the whims of all these things because you haven't made all the clear and important decisions that have aligned the later part of your life towards the Dharma. And these things are very, very important. Over the next few days, as you begin the process of extroversion, you have to be aware this is your first time in silence, and you're emerging out into the normal world, uh, as normal as it, as it is. <laughs> you, we have to appreciate that. You have to, to, you have to be cautious, a little bit slow. Let the extroversion happen, and just little by little, little by little. Definitely the next two days after you, you leave here, are quite sensitive. You've gone so deep inside yourself and, and the world as you know it is going to be much the same as you left it. But you, as you know you, has transformed quite substantially and you actually are quite sensitive. You're more sensitive than you know. The process of introversion has refined the senses. Hearing is more acute. Seeing is actually more acute. Um, so all the senses have become just a little bit more sharp. And right now, all the stimulus that we're receiving to the senses is very, very, very soft, very, very nice, kind. All there's positive energies all the time, for the most part. But when you go out into the world and the honking horns are there and the people are, you know, trying to, you know, scam you of something in a shop or in a, in a car ride or something like this happens, it can be quite shocking initially to see that people just aren't in the same wavelength as you are. So for that, you want to just make sure the next few days after you emerge are just a little bit more controlled, as it were, so that you're, you're going shopping, you're going to the restaurants, but you're not just like full power just in that mode, you're just taking a little bit of downtime every day. And after about two days, on the third day, you're kind of back to normalcy and you can handle all the, all the normal things of the world. So just make sure that you take it slow over the next few days. Now, that being said, one of the best ways of taking what you've learned and what you've been experiencing here and bringing it out into the normal world is by beginning to work with the practices of generating loving kindness and compassion. And tomorrow afternoon, as a way of breaking the silence, we'll start doing a few practices at the end of each meditation session that are simply focused on generating positive energy inside and beginning to have the sense that you're sharing it and spreading it and allowing other living beings to benefit from all your positive energy. Because back and behind of all the benefits, the mental benefits, the emotional benefits, the, the sense of inner peace and, and whatnot that meditation has given you over the last week together, you'll also find that these benefits are, are contagious. Yeah, and if you begin to generate 
thoughts of goodwill, thoughts of kindness, thoughts of compassion, and, and you begin to consciously wish that other living beings may experience the same things, it, it creates kind of like a, like a force field of positivity around you and attracts other positive people and more positive situations. And then people begin to feel this really nice and soft and delicate energy radiating out from you. And because of that, they're not so aggressive towards you. They're not so antagonistic towards you. If there's any negative energy that they would normally harbor against you, you're dissipating that just through your presence, just through the quality of an open heart. Yeah, and it's a great way of, of beginning to enter back into the world and beginning to sh shape the world and begin to transform the world, as it were, without really needing to do anything about the world. Just, you do what you need to do in the moment. You are responsible, you're conscious, you're, you're making intelligent decisions in the moment, but you're not so concerned about what will happen next as an outcome of all your positive intentions. This becomes the essence of karma yoga and how we as householders need to practice in, in the day-to-day -day life because we have so much karma. We have so many responsibilities and activities that we need to, that, that require our time and our attention. As you get older and older, you're going to want to find ways of disengaging and letting, letting the inner life be more of a priority than the external extrovert life. And then finding ways, ultimately, as your mind develops strength, of not really seeing such a difference. Initially, that, that contrast between the inner life and the external life is quite drastic. As the mind begins to develop its its innate awareness as the purity of the mind begins to, to increase, you'll begin to feel less distinguishment between the inside and the outside. And whether you're living a very active life in the world or not, like a very secluded life in the forest, ultimately is irrelevant. Each one of us has our own individual karma. Some of us are going to be a little bit more living a simple, humble life. Others have a great mission that we're on. We're needing to, to help people and serve people and being really engaged with the world. And ultimately, it doesn't matter what kind of lifestyle you prefer. Initially, though, simplicity is highly recommended until that kind of inner stability and that maturity of the mind is there, whereby no matter what's really happening on the outside, you're always just the same on the inside, and less touched by that. Now, to help us understand the spiritual path and to understand deeper layers of the Dharma, what I'd like to share with you today are ways of cultivating and ways of maintaining these higher states of awareness that you've touched within yourself as you move forward in in your life the fundamental movement of spiritual life is from the state of confusion and ignorance through a process of purification, a gradual path of purification that takes many different forms in terms of various different practices. We can try to give somebody at any stage the non-dual teachings that you can hear at the beginning, you can hear at the middle, some people only hear at the end. They can be doing so many years, decades of spiritual work and never actually find a wisdom approach, a wisdom technique or a wisdom teacher that is explaining and and helping them deepen that aspect of their practice. Some yogis just never gravitate towards that. It just happens sometime near the end. But just because we've heard that message doesn't always mean that we're ready for the message and ready to abandon the path of purification. And a lot of people will get confused 
And just because they hear the fundamental message of Advaita or non-duality, they will begin to think that, oh, okay, all of a sudden I'm ready and I no longer need to practice meditation. I don't need to do tapas anymore. I don't need to, you know, uh, eat pure foods and, and do all these yogi kind of activities because, you know, there's nothing to do and I'm already free. And, and the, the, even though one can intellectually understand that and even accept that, still, so long as we're under the influence of negative thoughts and negative emotions, so long as we're experiencing states of tamas and rajas in any way, uh, being a gross or really very subtle, um, we, we will need to continue the path of purification and continue through the yoga sadhana as we've learned it. At a certain stage, one becomes ready, one becomes what is known as adhikari, or ripe, completely ready. And at that stage, the non-dual methodology becomes uh, essential. You simply, for some yogis, for some yogis, that non-dual approach becomes their means towards liberation. And then some of the teachings, some of the practices, the gradual path of purification, need to be discarded. This isn't happen. This is, doesn't happen for everyone. It really depends on your path and your karma and your your orientation towards the non-dual or the the dualistic paradigm. Both will take you to the final destination. But even the not the dualistic path, the very very end has to break through into the non-dual. But that can happen as the very 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 final realization. And um, as we walk on this path and we're getting ready to transition into the non-dual path, if that is our interest, there are some, some things to be aware of and some qualities that we need to cultivate, some states of mind that we need to begin to develop and actively, consciously induce or invoke um, in order to support the self-inquiry practice as taught by Ramana, as taught by Adi Shankar, as taught by Vashishta, as taught by many of the great wisdom sages of the non-dual tradition of the Vedas. The fundamental core, back and behind, of the cultivation of all these practices is simply to bring us into a state of awareness that is an effortless recognition of our natural state, which is termed as nirlamba bhavana. This is the kind of, we can say, the final practice of a yogi on the wisdom path. This, you probably have never heard this word before. It's, it's very less used in the modern day. The word bhavana was very important in the ancient literature, and the yogis <coughs> used to use this word quite a lot. Bhavana means like a mood, or an attitude, or a mindset. Um, sometimes we can use the word contemplation, a way of contemplation, um, or a mindset, or an attitude, or a mood. That is near lumba, without support. Near lumba. Near means without, and lumba means to have a support or foundation. Now, the entire premise of the non dual path is that in order for it not to be dual, we need to remove the subject-object duality. Rather than having an object of meditation, the breath or a mantra visualization, a creator deity that one prays to, or some other object of meditation, the subject itself, the individual, the jiva, the, the witnessing consciousness, becomes, as it were, the object. But it's not really an object. 
you can't use the self or Brahman and, and turn it into an object because it isn't an object. It is ultimately formless. It has no quality. It has no, no, no quality of any kind. Nothing that you can do to grasp reality. Nothing that you can do to grasp or hold on to truth. Nothing that you can hold on to that will be permanent. Uh, sorry, that will be um, that will be tangibly permanent within the frame of experience of the mind. So when we approach these non-dual meditation techniques, the entire techniques, the entire methodology becomes a more formless approach, and we can't hold on to the formless. And because it can't be grasped, as it were, it is said to be without a foundation or without a support. The entire methodology of the meditator that is meditating, as it were, on Brahman or the Absolute is a non-meditation. Because meditation requires a meditator, an object of meditation, and the process of actually meditating, of trying to focus upon it in some way or another and concentrate on this object. But when we take away the object, everything just becomes purely subjective. And you can't actually meditate upon Brahman. You can't meditate upon reality. All that you can do is enter kind of this bhavana, this, this this type of reflection, as it were, upon your own natural condition, your own natural state, the, the, the experience of existing, of just simply being alive. And there's simply nothing that can be done to be alive. <laughs> like life is, and you are, and the state of being is not an attainment of any kind. You cannot attain this state of beingness. It is just a natural foundation of being alive, of existing itself. And because there is simply no way of attaining or achieving or actually even realizing the self, the word self-realization is a misnomer. It has no actual meaning because you can't actually realize the self. You already are the self. and you, You're already self-realized because you're alive and you exist and the intense aliveness is the destination, it is the object, we can say, of this experience of wanting to know the truth or become self-realized. So the entire process for, for the jnana yogi is to develop a few qualities that help us intuitively grasp without grasping <laughs> um, what, what, the, what this, this, this state of liberated awareness is. Um, but the effort that is involved can only be taken up to a certain extent. At a certain level, once the awareness has dawned within you once your mind has surrendered into the present moment and allowed itself to touch its essence, to, to touch the stillness and the silence of, of life itself. 
doing anything beyond this becomes counterproductive. Seeking anything more or, or wanting to realize something else becomes obstructive to the actual awakening. So you are going to notice that at a certain stage in your meditation practice, if you're practicing self-inquiry in particular, a certain time must come when the seeking or the searching for God or for truth has to stop. This seeking, this searching for truth, this yearning to be one with God or, or truth or to, to see the light or to become one with the cosmos or the universe, at a certain stage will become counterproductive to the experience of actually being that. Because you have never not been that which you're seeking to be. At a certain level, some of these words are paradoxical and they sound nonsensical. If you're not capable of being so still and so silent and so present, that the experience that we're speaking of is self-evident. And so if it isn't self-evident, then we must cultivate. Let's cultivate a few inherent qualities. And there's four qualities that we need to begin to work with if we're going to practice and move towards the non-dual methodology, the non-dual approach to spirituality. These are known as the sadhana chatushtaya. They're four preliminaries mindsets that we need to begin to cultivate actively. The first is known as viveka, which we've already talked about developing discernment. The second is developing this quality of letting go. It is known as vairagya, the ability to let go of distractions. Anything that pulls your awareness out of the present moment is a distraction. So we need to learn how to let go of all that stimulus and all that clinging. The remedy is what's known as vairagya or detachment. We also need to develop this non-activity inside the mind. It takes some work and some decades of meditation practice to begin to notice that back and behind all the thinking and the emotions of the mind, there are gaps of silence, gaps of silence in between thoughts, where the mind is just still in silence, when the mind is in a state of non-activity. And then back and behind of it all, until this realization is self-evident, we need to begin, we need to cultivate an intense longing for liberation. If our yearning for liberation is only mild or very weak, all the distractions will continually take over. So we need to cultivate this deep longing, this deep yearning for freedom, the, the desire to awaken your own highest potential. Now, in the ancient text, there's a text known as the Advaita Bodha Dipika, the light upon the non-dual realization. Advaita Bodha Dipika. Beautiful text, very short, very concise, very to the point. One of the few texts that Ramana Maharshi recommended that people actually study, and he didn't give recommendations out that lightly. So it's a very, very beautiful and profound text. Within that text, 
and many non-dual texts. These four preliminaries are there, but the uniqueness of that text is that it gives us a clear definition of what each one of these qualities or mind states are, what their cause is, what actually helps them come forward and begin to manifest in the personality, what their intended effect is in terms of a transformation within the human psyche, and how that effect, once brought to completion, how it will tend to manifest inside the personality. So what I'd like to do with you is share the teachings of the Advaita Bodhidipika with you in a very, very short and hopefully easy to understand manner. And we're going to take each one of these four preliminaries and begin to break it down for you so you understand it deeper. The first one is known as Viveka. And the meaning of Viveka is simply the ability to distinguish the unreal from the real. And we were talking about this a little bit yesterday. We are trying to take this abstract, metaphysical, philosophical con concept and really try to see what it means like within our own direct experience of life. And we began to, you know, use these very precise definitions that that which is real has to be, by its very nature, uh, permanent, cannot be unreal. Reality must be a permanent experience. And then when we apply that to ourselves and we begin to see that, okay, if there really is such a thing as reality, then this thing is permanent, must mean it is eternal. If it is eternal, it therefore must mean that it's an ever-present reality. And if it's an ever-present reality, it must mean that it must be in this present moment. So if I just draw all my attention to this present moment, what, what experience what aspect of human life is unchanging, is enduring, isn't fluctuating. And then the only thing that reveals itself after you realize the body and the mind are constantly changing is that there's this witnessing consciousness within. And this witnessing consciousness, sometimes we call it sakshi, like the, the witness, sakshi, the, the witnessing consciousness, is the only thing that actually doesn't fundamentally change. No matter whether the mind is experiencing happiness or sadness, the observing consciousness, the witness, is unaffected fundamentally. It doesn't actually change whether you're up or down, high or low, young or old. It is just an ever-present stillness, an ever-present silence within ourselves. And that's what we're trying to discern that's what we're trying to discriminate and begin to contrast this experience of stillness, of silence, of pure consciousness within us to all these transitory states of mental emotional activity. Developing discernment is very, very difficult unless we practice meditation so that we actually finally experience this thing people talk about as silence or stillness. Just have a few direct experiences of what it feels like to be just temporarily, just still for a little bit. When the fluctuations of the mind have, have just receded just a little bit, then we can just step back from the mind and realize, ah, this is what they're talking about. They're, they're using this word consciousness. It's not a word. It is an experience. It's a, it's a frame of, of experience. Now, this is what we're trying to cultivate discernment with. In the Vedic times, they use this beautiful mantra, Om Asatoma Satgamaya, lead me from the, real, from the unreal to the real. 
And that is the meaning of the mantra. This experience of being present and being so acutely aware of the existence of, of your very own self as stillness, as silence, as this unmoved consciousness is the real meaning of that mantra. When this experience awakens within you, then the next part of the formula of that mantra reveals itself. Om Asatoma Satgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Lead me from darkness to the light. This consciousness is self-radiant. Anybody that is awake to this level of perception is glowing. <laughs> like literally glowing with positive energy. With their, their, their very existence exudes this divine energy, this divine glow. And this is the light of the self, the light of the soul that some people talk about. And then, if you can sink into the experience, the third part of that mantra reveals itself. Om Asatoma Satgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityurma Amritangamaya Mrityurma Amritangamaya Yeah, lead me from, from death to mortal life. You begin to feel that this which you are touching, this which is your natural condition, really is eternal. It does not change, it does not die because it was not born. And this is the realization that the mantra is trying to, to, to imbibe, trying to teach us. It's not just a philosophy, it's just not a nice sounding mantra, it's not just some, you know, some, some words on a piece of paper. It's, it's a living, breathing experience of being alive. Yeah, it's such a beautiful thing to Vedic mantras. And this is what we're trying to discern. So long as we're a spiritual seeker and we're seeking something, it's very important that we know what we're actually seeking. And that's the main problem of a meditator. <laughs> you're sitting here and you're just struggling. What am I supposed to be doing? What am I looking for? I want truth, I want God, I want this samadhi, I want... But mind does not know what it's looking for. Yeah, because that which it's looking for is beyond itself, it's beyond the mind. You need to do all that you can to make the mind tranquil through the Sashtanga Yoga, through Yama Niyama Asana, all these things, until you get to the stage where you develop some level of mental mastery. And then and only then, with the development of Viveka, will become clear to you what you're actually seeking. What you've actually been looking for for all these years, all these decades, all these lifetimes. So Viveka becomes absolutely critical because without it, you don't really know what you're seeking. You don't know what you're really looking for or what you should be directing all of your attention towards. This is the real meaning of Viveka. Now, the cause of Viveka is receiving the sacred teachings, receiving the Dharma with a pure mind. Yeah? And for this, we can try to explain this to people in day-to-day -day context. You can go to a restaurant and tell your friends, oh, Asatoma Sakamaya, it's so great. <laughs> <laughs> My yoga teacher, Asatoma Sakamaya. <laughs> but it has no meaning. Mind is distracted. Mind is drinking and eating and thinking about this and that. And so much distraction. Mind is impure. So when the mind is impure, no matter how much you may try to teach somebody the Dharma and explain to them the path, it cannot stick. Mind must be pure. And the mind is made pure through all these things of yoga tradition, right? The, 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 the first of the... 
of the niyama saucha, purity. Purity of body, more importantly, purity of mind develops through daily meditation practice. What about your training the mind and you're purifying the mind as you're going through subconscious and removing all those obstacles, all that ignorance of the mind becomes tranquil and calm again. When the mind is tranquil and calm again, when you hear the Dharma, you hear the teachings, you're in good shape. You're in good shape. You can hear the teachings from a person. You can hear the teachings written down through books. Read the Gita. Read Ramana Maharshi's teachings. Read any book that is a Dharma book. And the same fundamental thing will be there. If it's a non-dual book, it'll be more clear and more direct. The non-dual things don't necessarily point you in this direction as quickly. So when one receives secret, sacred teachings and pursue them actively and cultivate the pursuit, this, cult, this pursuing of sacred knowledge, but with a pure mind tempered by meditation. Once this viveka is a living, breathing experience for us, we begin to notice some interesting effects within the personality. The ability to recall or remember your natural state, the ability to drop into the present moment, becomes something that is, is, isn't that forced. Throughout your day, as you're walking, as you're talking, sometimes without even a lot of effort on your part, just a little recall of, what am I looking for again? <laughs> what am I doing? Going here, going there, so dissatisfied. Ah, yes. okay, okay. Just this ability to recall your natural state and to sink into it, this is the effect. This is the effect. You always will remember that which is real within you. Again, it's not a philosophical realness. It's a direct experience of that within you which isn't changing. Man, just this witnessing consciousness. Eventually, when this effect has really been been giving fruit because it's been practiced for so many, you know, years and even decades of continual self-abidance, continual reflection, continual self-abidance, eventually one can be very, very present for long durations of time and thoughts will be there and activities will be there, but they'll be less in the foreground of experience and all just kind of happening within the eternal now. And this is a very beautiful place to get to in one's life. Once this becomes fully actualized inside the personality, it's kind of reached its limit of manifestation, there's said to be some signs of completion. And people that have a lot of discernment and they know what they're seeking because they've been seeking it for so long and they've to some degree found it, they will have a firm and unwavering conviction that that which is real Call it God, call it the universe, call it Shiva, call it Krishna, call it whatever you like to call it, that that is the only reality, that is the only thing that actually exists with any level of permanence within the, this thing we call life, and that everything else is transitory. They will have a very, very clear understanding of that which is eternal and that which is transitory, that which is nitya, eternal, and that which is anitya, changing. We call it real and unreal. And to them, this world will seem on some level very unreal. In the same way that when you're in a dream and you're having these dreamlike experiences every night as you're floating around in your astral body, that world seems very unreal. The same thing begins to manifest in the personality of one that 
is practicing viveka intensely for long periods of time, they will look upon this transitory world as something that is just like an unreal projection, just just a dream-like experience that is constantly changing. And because it's constantly changing, there's very little desire to grasp and to hold on and to cling to any transient phenomenon of any kind. Now, once we've developed viveka and we kind of know what we're looking for, what we're actually seeking, what it is that we're cultivating on the spiritual path, this remembrance of our natural state, we will need to then also begin to practice detachment. And detachment is just the ability to let go of all the distractions that keep you out of the present moment. All the memories of the past, all the things you desire for the future, all of your your, your desires. Ultimately, they are the thing that prevent you from experiencing that which you desire the most, which is happiness. Right? This happiness that so that all of us are seeking isn't an attainment. It isn't something you can get more of or um, achieve in any sort of way by bringing it from the outside into your life. Because nothing endures, nothing that can give you satisfaction will have the capacity to really give you that. All that it can do is give you some ephemeral happiness, some pleasure, pleasurable sensations and pleasantness will be there. But ultimately, all the people, places, possessions, objects of the world are going to one day disappear. And when they do, you will feel like you've lost something because you're depending on them for your sense of satisfaction. By all means, we can have these things. We can have relationships and nice houses and possessions and cars and gizmos and all the experiences that we want of life. But it's the clinging to them. That's the fundamental problem. Not the objects themselves, not the experiences themselves, the attachment to them and the ignorance that they're somehow going to give us enduring satisfaction. That is the fundamental ignorance. So what we want to do is, is develop discernment know what we're actually seeking, come back into our natural state, come back into the present again and again and again, until we begin to feel, you know, this joy of just being alive once more, this, this natural happiness, this natural satisfaction that is born of a clear and lucid mind, of a peaceful and still mind. And then this happiness is the real happiness you've been looking for. And the only way that you've awakened to it is because you've stopped caring so much, at least temporarily, about all this other stuff. And you just start aware of that, which is the most important, the most essential. This is called detachment, Vedagya. It sounds very terrible, all detachment. You know, nobody likes that. <laughs> you know? But it's, it's really so, so utterly simple. It's learning to let go of all distractions, letting go of everything else, other than this just acute awareness of what's happening to you here and now. That's all that's required. We talk about his attachment to pleasure, aversion to pain. Yes, it is that, but it can also be made to be understood in a much simpler way. Now, the only way to actually develop detachment is from the aforementioned recognition of the natural state, viveka. 
by discerning or understanding what it is that you're seeking and having direct experience of your natural state, then and only then do you see its value. And once you've seen its value, which is satisfaction, which is happiness, which is bliss, then and only then do all these other things really, can, they, can you really see through them? Can you really see how all of them are actually taking away from that which you're really wanting, which you're really seeking, which is happiness, satisfaction, joy, and bliss? Yeah? And by developing Viveka fundamentally, by recognizing what it is that you're searching for, what you've been seeking for for so long, and beginning to recognize that it's an ever-present reality that so long as your mind is drifting, lost in the past and in the future, in your desires and your thoughts and your fluctuating emotions, you're completely oblivious to it. But the moment you ground down into the experience of being alive in this moment, then this recognition is, is the base for you to understand all that does not serve you and to get rid of all these distractions and all these things that don't give you that which you're really yearning for and looking for. When somebody is able to let go, continually let go, moment after moment, no matter what is arising, whether what is arising is pleasurable and pleasant or unpleasant and painful and discomfort uncomfortable in some way or another, when you can just allow everything that is arising to arise without trying to push it away or cling to having more of it, it will arise and will fall away, will arise and fall away. And you will not be so concerned with what form it takes, under what condition it is, and you will learn how to just see it all as just this never-ending flow of life, the beautiful the miracle of creation unfolding. And you will be enjoying it vastly, but without clinging to it. And when the appearance, the, the things that are arising are less than desirable, then you will have a certain kind of strength of mind, a certain kind of presence whereby you will be able to endure difficulty, pain, discomfort, unpleasant sensations of all kinds with a lot more dignity, with a lot more nobility so that you're not so reactive to them and perpetuating the states of negativity. They're also part of the human experience. So long as we're not enlightened, we'll have karmas that manifest. Some will be positive, others will be less than positive, and they'll be the source of pain, frustration, dissatisfaction. <coughs> During those moments, by all means, it's much harder to practice. But, if you're up for the challenge, they become the greatest teachers. When you can allow mindfulness to break through, even during times of difficulty, times where there's a lot of immense pressure and stress and negativity, that's the real testing. Yeah, that's the real testing. If you can break through and recognize that mindfulness is the medicine for everything, including sorrow, including pain, including ill health and death and difficulties of all kinds, then you will really have upped your game, as it were. You know, this game of life, you'll, you'll really be able to, to manage your life and the situations, circumstances of your life with so much more skill than blindly reacting and trying to avoid those situations or sometimes getting so frustrated within them that you're making them worse 
than they have to be because you don't have the skill to navigate emotionally and mentally clearly with lucidity through them. When this quality of letting go has manifested in the personality, one is able to discern what is the source of happiness and what is like lasting natural happiness and what is the source of ephemeral happiness. The happiness we get through the world, through the pleasure worlds, there's nothing wrong with it. We don't need to try to avoid it. When it happens, by all means, enjoy the people, the places, the positive events of your life, but be careful about clinging, becoming too attached to those things as the sole source of your satisfaction and happiness. If with mindfulness you can enjoy them, wonderful, you'll get even more enjoyment out of them than you do without mindfulness. Because when you don't have this detached outlook on life, even though you're experiencing pleasure or pleasant things, you're not really deriving the maximum joy you could out of that experience because somewhere inside the back of the mind there is this fear that this experience is going to fade away and it's not going to last because the wisdom of your mind is still there whether you're mindful or not and because of that fear of this thing changing this thing not enduring you can't actually enjoy it to the fullest because you're clinging and the second you're clinging and you're attached to it, you're, you've made that experience of pleasant, uh, enjoyable feelings less than what it really can be. Yeah. So we have to be very, very careful when these things arise and enjoy them. But again, mindfulness, presence, it really becomes the medicine for all of these mental afflictions that we face. When somebody is able to really let go like of everything, not just the things that are easy to let go of, eventually it'll develop what we call an intense disinterest in the world. <laughs> and all of you are going, oh my god, disinterest. I don't know, that doesn't sound very nice. I don't want an intense disinterest in the world. <laughs> this is something that manifests later on in life when a meditator is capable of enjoying the bliss of the self to such a high degree that there's nothing in the world that can... Try that that can excel this that can be better than than the bliss of these you know meditative absorptions that we're talking about and the pleasures of the world become like this compared to the the joy and the bliss that one can feel once one learns how to abide in the self this these little glimpses that you get into the state of mindfulness or the state of presence or, or present moment awareness they're very nice. They're very, very satisfying. But the longer you stay here, and the more you allow your mind to just sink into this, and the abundance of satisfaction and happiness and joy that you feel, it exponentially grows, yeah? And it will fill you from within with such and intensity that nothing on the outside can rival it. Yeah, this is a very, very uh, profound recognition of the source of happiness and an intense interest in only being happy, <laughs> not pursuing things that are, 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 are less than a natural joy, natural happiness, which is the, the natural conditions, the natural state of a purified, enlightened mind. 
Once we have the base of Viveka and Vairagya, we also need to develop the base of what's known as Uparati, or non-action. Uparati means non-action of the mind. The body is impelled by its own physical karma to be in a constant state of activity. Even when the body is completely still, like in sleep or like in meditation, for as long as the body is still, digestion is going, circulation is going, all this activity is going on. We can't stop the body from activity, nor should we try to. Some moments every day when the body is still, essential. In sleep, in meditation practice, helpful to have the body still. The more still the body is during meditation practice, the more the subtle energies will, will flow appropriately and begin to calm down and become steady. And when the subtle energies are calm and steady, the prana has become still, the mind will also become still. So what we want to do are find ways of mastering our mind and restraining the outward tendencies of the mind. It is said in the ancient text that the cause of non-action is the path of Ashtanga Yoga. From Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, all the way to Dharana, concentration, just like we've been practicing these last days. Because you've been practicing uparati, or restraint of the mind, it's not comfortable, some pain is there, you have to cause all sorts of trouble to the body to help the, the energy body, the prana, become still enough that it allows for some semblance of stillness within the mind. Once this mind of ours has found some stillness, through the practice of the gradual purification method of Ashtanga Yoga, then we begin to get insight in what it looks like, what it feels like, to have a very calm and quiet mind. A mind that isn't so agitated, it's not so restless. And this becomes absolutely essential in order to pursue self-inquiry. cannot really practice the self-inquiry technique so long as our mind is agitated or restless. It needs to have some quietness inside. Ultimately, when we begin to touch upon this stillness within the mind, we will notice that the personality of a meditator will see, begin to have this desire to experience the world. So as you're sitting, your mind will mature and all the ideas and all the concepts around what you should do next and what it is that you should pursue um, will begin to shift and you'll begin to become more disinterested in the activities of the world. And the desire to experience the external world, going here, going there, will take second place to the experience of just mastering the mind, mastering emotions, and living in a greater state of inner contentment and inner peace cultivated through meditation. Again, this happens as you mature in your meditation practice and as, as you mature in wisdom. Ultimately, for very advanced meditators, very, very spiritually minded people, there will come stages in their meditative experience as they enter into these dhyana states, etc., etc., that they will be so completely oblivious of the outside world, their senses will be so drawn into the inner life, the inner experience, that they'll be temporarily completely forgetful of the outside world. It's as if they're sleeping to the world, and they will be able to sit in meditation for long periods of time and be totally unaware of what is going on around them. Now, once knew a man 
His name was Guru Dat Sharma. He was devotee, a disciple of Neem Kuroli Baba, a great enlightened master of North India. And <laughs> from a young age, I think, he found Neem Kuroli Baba, or Neem Kuroli Baba found him. I think when he was in his, in his teens, by the time I think he was in his 20, in his 20s, some of his karmas of his previous lifetime had matured and developed an intense interest in meditation. He was a very, very advanced soul. wasn't fully realized, but was very advanced. So much so that he would just sometimes come into the presence of Neem Kroli Baba, who was not a normal kind of enlightened being. He was part of the crazy wisdom tradition of great siddhas of, of India, whereby sometimes he would just take his hand and, and smack this man on the side of the head, no joking, and, and this young man is in his early 20s would just be sitting there and just absorbed for hours and hours and hours without moving, without anything, until Neem Kroli Baba decided it was time to pull him out again, smack him to his head, and people around him were just amazed, you know, what is going on? How can you, you know, do this to somebody? Clearly this man has entered into some samadhi state. Nobody can sit there for three, four, or five hours without needing to go to the bathroom, without wanting food, without anything, you know? And when people ask him, can you do this to me? <laughs> you know, can I? Maharaji would explain, Inkhali Baba would explain, it's, it's a matter of karma. He is just ready. He's ready, and you know, because he is here with me, this is just the play that is unfolding. Um, I had the opportunity to meet this, this, this man. By then, he was quite an old man, very well distinguished, all white, wore a traditional Indian dhoti, kurta, always very clean, very, very dignified man, a little bit tall. And one of the unique things that would occur to him later on in life was that sometimes people would take him and they travel with him, and they take him to certain temples and they go here, go there, and sometimes he'd just sit in meditation. And all of a sudden, he would just, and they knew it was coming, because they would just kind of see him become still and just kind of go into meditation and just like a statue. And just sit there for like completely unaware of what was going around him. It gets to the extent in the case of some yogis that there's absolutely nothing you can really do to get them out. So people resort to all sorts of weird things. The most common one is fetching a few buckets of cold water and literally throwing cold water and dousing them with as cold water as they can find in order to awaken them to their senses and to pull them out. Yeah, they become totally oblivious to the outside world. The experienced and high meditators lose all sensory contact. There are a few tricks, a few pressure points you can touch on their body, but very, very few people know what to do. Sometimes they also bring very, very strong scents. There's some things that smell very foul, very terrible, and you can bring that to their nose, and, and eventually they, they may kind of realize something's going on in the world that is maybe dangerous or, or needs their attention, and then that can also pull them out. And this is just an advanced sign of a deep and profound meditator that has entered into the dhyana states or maybe even into samadhi states. And so this is how some of this unfolds. 
Now, in addition to those three, discernment, knowing what it is that we're seeking, Vedagya, learning how to let go of all distractions, Uparati, making the mind still and silent through discipline. And then we also need to develop this intense longing for liberation. It's known as Mamukshitva. This is very, very important. It's this entire focus of one's life should all be wrapped around this one central theme of wishing or yearning to be free. Freedom to you can have all sorts of meanings. Spiritual freedom and the experience of nirvana is what we're talking about here. And for this, this pursuit can't really be a part-time affair. Eventually it needs to become a full-time dedication. And to actualize the highest potential of wisdom and compassion, you have to dedicate a lot of time to it. And you have to allow all of your other desires to become secondary to this one desire. As a general trend, we say that desire isn't something that is very useful. However, we do have some very noble desires that we can cultivate, and this is the most noble desire of them all. If this becomes a central theme of your life, the, the spiritual journey, the, the desire to become fully awake, then all of your micro-desires will get funneled into this one desire. And because this desire is the strongest, then every time you have to make a decision, well, should I go here, should I go there, should I talk to this person, or associate with that person, should I this, 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 all of your decision-making becomes more effective and efficient, and it makes all of your energy channel towards your life's highest aspirations. This is a very, very important and noble desire to cultivate. In the final stages, ultimately you'll need to let go of even this desire. Yeah, this nirlamba bhavana, this, this natural meditation, this meditation without any support, requires you to relinquish this desire for liberation. But until that is something that you're ready for, we need to constantly cultivate, cultivate this yearning in order to channel all the energy of the mind. The cause of this desire is simply association with realized people, people that are on the spiritual journey and have some level, lower or higher, of spiritual realization. Uh, keeping their company is known as satsang. And it's very hard to have a desire for liberation until you've met somebody that is liberated. Because until you see this abstract idea of what a liberated soul can be like in, in the flesh, like some living, breathing being that is completely free, you will not know exactly what this looks like you know, or what this can potentially be like when it's embodied in the life of another. And when we see it embodied in the life of another, some recognition within us awakens. Something inside of us accepts that, wow, it's, enlightenment is actually possible. And something inside of us also triggers that makes the idea that enlightenment is even possible for me to also become part of, part of acceptance of why one is here, what the ultimate aim of your life truly is. So it's very, very important to come into contact with, with spiritually minded people because only by knowing them and seeing how they act and how they live and how they speak do you really see what the full, complete picture of an enlightened life looks like in the flesh. And then naturally you will yearn to be like them. You will yearn to be free. 
you will yearn to, you know, be compassionate and, and to have the qualities of patience and forgiveness and love and, and wisdom. All of these qualities that you admire in another, you will begin to awaken inside of yourself. So it becomes very, very important to try to find such beings. When this matures, depending on the quality of the seeker and the quality of the teacher, a, a desire will arise inside the mind of people whereby they will often take this enlightened person that they've met and develop a, an intense relationship with them whereby they will listen to their words and their instruction and practice what is being told as the means towards liberation. So they'll become like a student and teacher will be like a teacher. And eventually this this desire to be near one's teacher will begin to manifest. In the initial stages, it's typically important to have a physical proximity with the teacher. doesn't mean that you need to live with them. doesn't mean that you need to see them every day. But once in a while, having some check-ins, visiting the teacher, or having the teacher visit the students, sometimes that happens. Some great teachers travel around the world constantly, um, you know, going from place to place, meeting with their students, because the students are, <laughs> are not capable for some reason to, to visit the teachers. Now, in the initial stages, physical proximity is really important. In the middling stages, psychic proximity is more important. That initial meeting with the teacher, that initial physical contact with the teacher, very helpful, almost essential for the vast majority of people, but not always. Some of my greatest teachers I've never met in the flesh. I consider Ramana one of my gurus, but I never met Ramana Maharshi. However, I did have the good privilege of going to his physical ashram. And in Indian tradition, we say that once the teacher has left their body, and their jiva, the essence of their being, becomes their ashram, becomes their, their temple, wherever. If they've left any sort of physical structure, any school, any institute, any ashram, temple, monastery, somehow that, the buildings there and the people that go there are kind of surrounded by this energy of the teacher. And simply by visiting the physical place where, where a great sage meditated, can go to certain caves in India, for example, or certain temples in India. There are places in India where there are great saints that have actually not even left their bodies. They have entered into what is known as Jiva Samadhi, whereby their physical body still exists. They've entered into Nirvikapa Samadhi, but for some reason they have not their, their consciousness has not dislodged for their from their body, and their body could have been there for hundreds of years. The consciousness is still, for some reason, attached to the body. It doesn't happen in all cases, but sometimes we find jiva samadhis. They're often in caves or things buried beneath temples where the people, the local people of that village or that town, know there's a jiva samadhi there and they know the name of the sage that two, three hundred years ago went into that cave, told everyone, close the doors, I'm entering jiva samadhi, and stayed there. And their body is entombed there, as it were. It's still there physically there. Some of those bodies are still a little bit of respiration is still going on, from what I've heard. Some are just in nervy kapha and the breath is completely stopped, but still their energy is still there. For those who have left the mortal frame and the body got cremated or buried or something like that, still their, their presence manifests in these, in these holy places. And going to these places is very, very good. The energy there is very good. And the psychic 
proximity to the great sages can be had there. And you can receive transmissions and blessings and instruction just through silence. You just go there and make your mind quiet. And all of a sudden, Ramana starts talking to you. He doesn't say very much. <laughs> Ramana likes silence a lot. Most of it actually happens through a kind of telepathy, as it were, um, that it's just kind of an inner knowing of what the path is and how one should practice more than it is like words floating through your mind stream. And there's many, many examples of this. Neem Kuroli Baba's ashrams. Uh, in the modern day, going to see the hugging Saint Amuchi is a wonderful experience. Yeah, and keeping proximity to them physically or psychically becomes very, very useful. This is why we say that, you know, at the beginning of your meditation session, if you can, invoke the blessings of your teacher whoever your teacher may be, um, or blessings of the sages, just either visualize them uh, in front of you. Sometimes you can visualize them like they're touching the crown of your head. Sometimes in the Tibetan tradition and many Buddhist traditions, they visualize this teacher as like sitting on top of their head, like the small little Buddha just sitting there giving blessings right before they start meditating. It awakens the seven chakra and some blessings are there, some positive energy will flow that will give you great strength in your meditation. So this becomes very, very helpful. As one gets more and more mature, then physical proximity is not necessary, and even psychic proximity becomes just a perpetual kind of experience that life itself is the guru. And this is what you call Ramana, this is what you call Amma, this is what you call, you know, Baba, whatever word you use for your teacher. Uh, they, they just become the very substratum of life itself, and they're constantly teaching through life's lessons. When this fully matures, one will begin to have a massive disinterest in gaining knowledge from the outside in. And it is said in the Advaita Bodhidipata that the sign of completion of this desire for liberation will be uh, giving up of all studies of the spiritual life, giving up the study of the Vedas, giving up the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, books of any kind, and also the performance of all the ritualistic activity and the social obligations that one has. In Indian culture, there's lots of ritualism, lots and lots of ritual, more than anywhere else in any other culture in the world. So many ceremonies and rituals. Here in Bali, you can see that actually, so much ritualizing. And even though that has its benefits and it's very important for the purification of mind, when one prepares for what is known as sannyas, or the complete letting go of the world, and for a pursuit of only the spiritual realization, then all rites and rituals must also be gone, uh, ended. In more of a universal Western context, you can think of this as letting go of a lot of social responsibilities. Yeah, all these obligations we have to, to family and friends and things like that, by all means we honor them, but we do so with a lot more, um, you know, involvement as it were on a psychic level you're more inside and you go through that you know marriage ceremonies and you know the, the funerals and all these things some girl was here and she was you know meditating for us five days all of a sudden aunt dies what can we do about that a big social obligation to go to the ceremony the ritual and because of that, you know, she traveled halfway around the world to come sit with us to meditation for seven days. But because of this massive social obligation, she left the peace and the tranquility of this experience in order to fulfill that dharma. By all means, under some conditions, that's very, very useful. However, as much of 
this letting go as we can of the responsibilities of the world, um, the better. Some people have had people in their lives right now undergoing very terrible health problems, very, very difficult things, and they have enough wisdom to know that, okay, I have two options here. One, I can go there. I can serve them. I can be helpful to them. I can be there to help them relieve you know, their pressure and their problems. Or, because I'm already here, and this makes so much sense, I'm going to just only work on the inner world of sending them prayers, sending them blessings, using all my spiritual energy as a means of healing them, as a means of helping them. And by the time I'm finished this particular retreat, then I will go and then I will serve. And because I've strengthened myself, made my energy so strong, awakened wisdom, awakened compassion to such a greater degree than if I'm constantly in a state of distraction, when I get a chance to see them again, I'll be able to really, really serve them, really, really help them. These things are, are very individual, so some people need to do these things. Lily, for example, needed to leave a few last year, one of our meditations, to go serve her, her family because her mother just passed away. And so some, it's very, very individual. But these things we want to become aware of that. We really want to, to honor everyone around us, but we need to really honor our desire for liberation first and foremost because it's really the, the highest way we can serve the world and benefit the world. Now, having gone through this entire scheme of things, there's a lot that we're cultivating now. To simplify it for you, even though I've broken down all of these things and all their stages and extrapolated, the most important takeaway to help you maintain mindfulness and maintain this presence in your day-to-day -day life is to cultivate only the causes. Those effects that we're talking about haven't given fruit yet. Because they haven't given fruit in your personality yet, you must cultivate their causes first and foremost in order to uh, awaken uh, to the path of wisdom. So let's just go through those again in brief. So we said that each of these qualities has a cause. The first is receiving sacred wisdom with a pure mind. This is essential. Pursue the Dharma. Find opportunities to study. Find opportunities to practice. This is the number one thing to pursue. Because Vairagya is caused <laughs> by Viveka, there's blank here. It's like nothing. You can't really do anything about developing detachment until you receive more Dharma teachings, more teachings on truth, more teachings on the path of wisdom, more non-dual um, teachings. You need to pursue those and to practice them. So that becomes one of the primary things. And because we're also needing to receive these teachings with a purified mind, with a calm and quiet mind, we need to continue to practice asana, we need to practice you know, uh, pranayama, pratyahara, and dharana, concentration exercises daily, while having a very strong base of moral ethical conduct. Just because we've received non-dual teachings doesn't mean that we abandon the gradual path of purification. It's very important. If anything, your tapas, your austerity, your disciplined life needs to increase, not decrease. Yeah, so if you're really taking this to heart, more meditation, more sadhana, more, more, more. <laughs> more purification is necessary to create that, to generate the causes that are necessary for the effects to be there. Because only when the effects of these four preliminaries are there will the non-dual teachings take hold. You, you've made the soil of your heart and mind so fertile 
by developing these four qualities to their to their to their full effect, that when you really finally are ready for wisdom to become part of day-to-day life, then then and only then will the gradual path of purification be less necessary. And then ultimately we need to find awake people. We need to surround ourselves with community. We need to seek out meditation centers and ashrams and, and the enlightened teachers that teach in such places. Now this is becoming exceedingly difficult in the modern world as less and less sages are taking birth on this planet because the desire of the people for dharma is is decreasing in the midst of modernization and this materialistic lifestyle that's spreading to all parts of the planet. But any opportunity you have to see the Dalai Lama, any opportunity you have to see Amuchi, or, or meet with any holy person, by all means take that. Even if they're not your teacher, even if they're of a different tradition, you don't necessarily go there to receive teachings, you just go there to receive the transmission of wisdom, which happens through silence, and which can just happen by being in the proximity of an enlightened sage. And you may not take their sadhana or their discipline that they're advocating, just receive blessings and then you can be on your way. If they become your teachers, then by all means relinquish all other sadhanas and do only what the enlightened tell you. So on that note, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode, and we invite you to visit www.blooming-lotus-yoga.com backslash drops of nectar to learn more through Ramananda's books, articles, online courses, or by attending retreats. May you be happy, peaceful, and free.